It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb, Eric, and Sean. Listen in as they discuss the 1970 film Multiple Maniacs. Yeah, Eric, do you want to explain why we're uh, watching this one here instead of our originally planned? <laughs> I don't know if I'm qualified to explain. All I know is we were going to talk about Pink Flamingos, and I don't even remember the origin of that conversation. Um, and I looked. I looked high and low. And it's not really in print anywhere in any medium like DVD or Blu-ray, or it's not available streaming. It wasn't really available on YouTube. I searched. I didn't search diligently, but I searched. And it wasn't really anywhere. The only place was um, you could buy a ripped a, a ripped DVD copy off of Amazon, but it said it would take three to four weeks shipping. So in my search for John Waters movies, I saw that there was at least one or two others that I might be able to get uh, more readily um, in streaming form or on Blu-ray. Uh, and this was one of them that just happens to be available on Criterion Disc or streaming right now on the Criterion Channel streaming service. So much more convenient. I asked you gents if that was okay. And you guys said yes, so well, here we are. I thought I saw one on Amazon, which is the one that I have. It's a double DVD pack with female trouble. Um, I saw there were some multi-packs out there, but multi-packs. they had prices of like sixty nine dollars. I don't know. I think I remember. Um, they had they had like collectors' prices, so I just kind of dismissed it. Oh, okay. I I thought I saw one for like fifteen or sixteen. That that's I'm like, huh? What? Okay. But yeah, that that movie, uh, Pink Flamingos. You know that it took a long time for them to release that on VHS. I actively looked for that movie, and a friend finally gave me like a um, a black market. VHS copy, but uh, it's because, and I actually freaking reached out to the distributor and they explained to me that it wasn't going to be released because of legal issues with the music in the movie. Um, <laughs> right. Maybe it's that mau mau, mau mau mau. Yeah. Right. Well, this movie had similar history, I guess, like widely unavailable for much of history and also previously had music rights issues as well. Yeah, I remember when I saw Pink Flamingos, I actually searched this movie out, and it was just nowhere. Just just like um, his first film, Mondo Trasho, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't find that thing anywhere either. I don't know if that's more easily available now, but... I looked for it, and I, I don't see it anywhere. You, you never know. It might be, like, as a as a, a special feature and a criterion, but I would I would think they would give it, give it its own release. Mm. 
Yeah, I was going to start a whole uh, John Waters retrospective at the time, and then it just fell apart because I couldn't find these two movies, so I gave up. But... <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah. Completionism. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, uh, oh, the list, the, the readers uh, don't know what we're talking about unless they looked. Uh, we're talking about uh, Multiple Maniacs. 1970, directed by John Waters. His second movie after Mondo Trasho? Yeah. His second feature length, I think. And they say his first talkie was Mondo whatever, Trasho, Asylum film? Yes. Okay, well, there you go. And he had, like, some short, like, film projects prior, but, I mean, you know, like, under 10-minute shorts. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um... I, I wish I had more time to listen to the commentary because I think John Waters gives my favorite commentary. He gives great commentary. There's John Waters, like a number 10, and then like a one would be William Friedkin. Friedkin gives terrible commentary. He just repeats what's on the screen. But when Waters gives commentary, he's like, oh, this is Pauly so-and-so. I haven't seen him. and uh, I just saw him last year in a funeral, and he's doing really well. And I, I just like, you know, you feel like you're sitting right there next to the guy, you know, as he's explaining this. Um, but, you know, it, what's really cool about his movies is that it's literally he and his friends. And I find this cool because I used to do this. He and his friends get together, get stoned and try to make a movie or make a movie with like his parents money, which this one costs five thousand dollars of his dad's money. And he says that he paid him back with interest. <laughs> But, yeah, and I, uh, uh, I, I think your your take on this movie would depend on you know what other John Waters movies you've seen because it's just natural for us to just compare it to everything else that he's done. I think as human beings we do that. Um, this movie really does kind of feel like a rough draft of the stuff mm -hmm. that he would go on to do, so it's hard not to kind of see it as kind of a trial run. Well, I have to say too, from my perspective. I don't really know anything about John Waters, period. I, I've seen his image before, and I don't know why. I've seen it many, many times, so I, knew, I always knew what he looked like. But I don't really know anything about him, to be honest. Uh, and whatever I know, I just learned in the last three days. So I have nothing to compare this to at all. And I don't even, I didn't even really know his reputation or anything prior to very recently. Well, not really. Yeah. Yes, really. Like, not even like Serial Mom? Not at all. The only movie of his that I'd heard of when I looked at the filmography um, was Hairspray. And I only caught like half of that movie on free television, like, I don't know, in the year 1990. And like, that's it. And I never <laughs> even knew he that was his movie or he had any association with it or anything until the last really? week. Yeah, really. Huh. That's interesting. Hmm. So, if if you guys look, there's um, a documentary. Uh, I don't know if it's still on Netflix. It was at one time. I think it's called I Am Divine. Oh, yeah. And it's a whole documentary about uh, Divine and his life. His mom is in it. She has since left this mortal coil. But it's a really good documentary. Of course, John Waters is in it. But, like, they were all, like, friends in Baltimore. And, you know, they just get just stones and make some movies and it so looks like it you know mm -hmm. um and a lot most of these people are no longer with us they mostly died of drug overdoses or in divine's case um a heart attack because 
Glenn, which was Divine's non-drag name, had quite a penchant for for cakes and stuff. Um, I th- always thought he died of AIDS until I saw the documentary. But fun fact about Divine, I'm sorry, this doesn't have anything to do with multiple maniacs, but <laughs> Divine was trying to make it in Hollywood. And, you know, he was in a couple movies with small, small parts, but he finally landed a role on Married with Children. He was going to play a regular role. He was going to play their uncle. Okay. However, the night before their shooting, their well, they're they're filming their first scene. He died of a heart attack in his sleep, which I think oh, is wow. just so sad. I mean, Jesus! Like, you work so hard. Well, kind of hard. And he's <laughs> 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 eating shit. He's eating like livers. I mean, the- yeah, yeah. His <laughs> naked ass is in this one um, twice, I think. At least. Um, and. <laughs> All these people, I mean, as long as they're alive, they're in John Waters' movies. Um, If you go back and look at Serial Mom, Mink Stoll is like the funniest thing in Serial Mom. She is so hilarious. And none of these people can act. None of them went to acting school. John Waters never went to film school. Maybe maybe he did. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But but the thing is, they can overact, you know? They're, They're not like in a bad horror movie with terrible acting but they they're just overacting their hearts out like they're a they're doing like a cut scene from sesame street or mr rogers or the electric company or something you know yeah there's there's almost like a kind of john waters flavor vaudeville style of acting <laughs> yes people yeah it totally works but yeah it's not it's not what you'd call good that's one way to describe it <laughs> uh eric have you seen pink flamingos no, absolutely. I'm okay, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so okay. blind to this director and his work and this genre and everything. Well, maybe we, you know, if we don't cover it on this, but we can maybe we'll cover it on Thousand One Movies podcast oh, someday. Jeez, it's in there. It's on that list. It's on that list. Yeah. So, Eric, since you're coming in completely blind here, what what, what did you think? I mean, yeah, yes, we're what we really should be talking about here. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Initially, like, I felt like I was watching, like, an, you know, an old school porn, but without the porn. Like, it was all the, the stuff around. Like, in a porn, you have the sex acts, obviously. I felt like I was seeing everything else around the sex acts without the actual sex acts. I mean, because of the acting and because of the, the avant-gardeness. Uh... It, it just, it just felt like that kind of production. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I think it's exactly right. I agree with that. I wouldn't have thought it described. It's like watching a porn without the porn. Yeah, it was just all the other bits. Oh man, look at the puke eater right now. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Jeez. Oh, um, he looks like an amputee as well as a puke eater. But anyway, um, it's like I, Gilbert Godfrey with a big fro did. on. It didn't. It's like the one person in the commentary that he says he doesn't really know who that person is. And yeah. <laughs> out of all of them. But anyway. Uh, and I was... Mm, I mean, I know now from watching this, the special features and the com- listening to the commentary, but I don't know anything of this genre. Uh, Caleb had mentioned to me about just the exploitation genre in, in general. It's, I'd heard of black exploitation and other things. Exploitation, but I never just heard of regular exploitation, and I didn't even know what that meant. Uh, I literally never heard of it. Um, 
and I didn't, I didn't know what to make of this movie. Um, man, I don't know. I was really confused uh, when I first started watching it because because okay, so obviously it was made in sixteen at the, near the end of sixty nine, and it reminds me of um, when my nephew was a bit no no not my nephew my niece um, about a year ago she would have been like three at the time. She would just watch these random YouTube videos, but they were, it was like a certain channel, like this family um, would just make these, their children who were like 10-ish, but there was a bunch of siblings from like age four to 14, a whole bunch of siblings in this family. And they just make these little skits, um, the kids do. And I guess they shoot it on their, their iPhones or something, I don't know. And my niece would just watch these things. And there was like, it felt like there was hundreds of them all produced by the same family. And it was just the kids making up make-believe skits, kind of like I would do with my friends when I was a kid. They just happened to be filming it. And they're just, and they, it had to be like 30 minutes long of these little skits that these kids would just do. And she would just watch them forever. And this reminded me of that. This just reminded me of like kids, okay, older kids. Uh, um, but just having a camera and like let's just do stuff that we make up mm-hmm. and like film it oh yeah and it, and it it's an oddity to me <laughs> it's an oddity to me from 69 just like those videos my niece was watching a year yeah. ago where just like i was like how is there hours and hours of this family and these kids doing <laughs> these inane things and, and like running around their large home with their nerf guns and like killing each other no it's what that's that's ex- that's exactly what this is except mm-hmm. they're adults and they're stoned and they're probably a little bit more violent she's not wounded she's dead um <laughs> and then okay so on my first sit down i watched up to you know i watched the cavalcade of i don't know, i'm just gonna call it the cavalcade of horrors uh and then i saw up to when they net the patrons and then one gets murdered and then they make a break for it and that's where i took a break um just because of time constraints and so i thought okay that's the beginning of this story and then now divine's gonna be on the run or i don't know what but th- this is setting something up and like none of that is that is not what the movie's about <laughs> yeah it's, it's not uh... at all what it's about and so that was another thing that just kind of threw me that the whole beginning is just like a cold open but it's almost like a separate prelude to the actual story story. Yeah, yeah. It's actually about the conflict between Divine and David. Uh, and it's interesting, you, you, you used the word exploitation film. Um, I think that, I guess, I think John Waters, uh, his early stuff is exploitation, but it's only the type of exploitation that John Waters does. It's like he has his own little subgenre. Yep. I can't think of any fil- other filmmaker that makes movies like this. Yeah, I was going to say, definitely don't take this as an example of regular exploitation. I yeah. wouldn't know. <laughs> I wouldn't know. But he did describe in the commentary how this movie didn't really fit the popular molds for, I don't know, alternative viewing at the time. Cause he was oh, saying, yeah. Because he was saying there was basically two genres of this weird alternative stuff. There was the Grindhouse stuff... Uh, and then there was the uh, what was the other one? Um, art house. Was it art house? Is that what? No, 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 no. He said there was like there was the. 
There was the horrors, the grindhouse horrors, and I can't remember what the other genre was. Ugh. Jeez. Oh, oh, wow. What's wrong with me? But anyway, Se- he, sex comedies, sex comedies. Maybe, maybe that's what it was. I think it might have been that. And he was saying carry that, on films. And then people like to go to the, the drive-in or whatever. And for the the schlocky whores, they just wanted you know the thrill of like the scares and whatever, and they didn't really care you know about the budget or anything, just the scares to be frightened. Uh, and then maybe it was the sex ones, which are obviously you know what that is. And then he said that like this movie didn't really do well with either, and wouldn't get shown in any drive-throughs because it didn't really offer like the sexual gratification aspect or like the boobies in the way you want to see the boobies, like in a gratuitous yeah. way. And it didn't. It wasn't like the horror thing either. It wasn't scary. So then that's why he said he didn't really have an audience for this at the time because it didn't fall into those categories. Yeah, uh, I can see how that could be. And I'm and like nobody saw this movie when it first came out, and then you know it sat in John Waters' attic for years and years, and you know, and then he made. Yeah, he only took it to small little art house theaters around the country and universities, and that's all who ever really saw it initially. Gosh. If I if I could turn back time, if I had my TARDIS, I'd go back in time and like go to one of those little art house showings. Ah, the smell of weed and beer. Yeah, and he was saying that him and Divine would like do a little show beforehand, and they yes. have like the police come and arrest them. That sounds so great. <laughs> I would love to see that. Yes, he said they do this little vaudevillian skit before. Every I, I want to be there. I, I want to be there. I want to hang out with them. I, I just don't want to get do a lot of drugs. Maybe smoke a little weed, but I don't know. I'll be there with the drugs. I'd be like, bring it on. Maybe not the heroin, but which, by the way, we actually see that someone's shooting up heroin in this movie. Just crazy. Yeah, in a church. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I really like this movie starting out. I'm like, okay, this is traditional John Waters. And then it kind of went, it didn't really go off the rails. I just feel like maybe I wanted it to go off the rails, but it didn't go as off the rails as I thought it was going to be. Um, and it's because I had expectations, because I've seen Pink Flamingos. And um, what did he do after Pink Flamingos? Oh, uh, maybe, no, uh, Female Trouble. Female Trouble, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it doesn't really, There, he's not quite found his footing yet. There are scenes that are just way too long, like oh, yes. the church scene. What oh. in the hell? Yeah, that, going through all the stations of Christ, it just goes on forever and ever. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did not like that at all. I, it's not that I found it offensive. I mean, you've got to be really bad to offend me. You've got to be, like, killing cats on screen or something like that. But I don't understand what the point was. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get into what I, I think the, the point was. But just to give my impressions, I was in the same boat as you. And at the start, I was like, oh, here we go. Like, this totally feels like, you know, regular John Waters stuff. And then, yeah, then it just spirals off into really weird territory where I didn't really know what he was going for at all. But I I, I think the commentary made it work a little bit more for me. Did you listen to the commentary, Sean? Or did you say you did? No, I didn't have time. Yeah, and I got kind of more of an idea of what he was trying to go for, but... And what is that? Yeah, it definitely feels like undercooked. <laughs> what did you glean from the commentary? I know, I just want to hear what Caleb is going to say. Well, to... Do, do you guys know what Dada film is? No. Or Dada art? Yeah, uh, yeah, sort of. Well, since I'm such a big surrealist guy, Dada was kind of like the precursor to surrealism, whereas um, surrealism had more of a focus on being like, okay, we want to tell stories 
that don't have to confine to realism. Dada was just like, throw everything out. The whole point is irrationality, lack of logic, and just to kind of shock and awe type mm, movie mm. and stories. And John Waters doesn't say that that's what he was going for with this movie, but behind the scenes, like, decision was like, what can we do to just shock people? What can we do to surprise people? And so I feel like in some way this is like a weird kind of late Dada flick thrown in with a ton of exploitation so it could get away with a lot more. That wouldn't surprise me. I bet you that's right because John Waters has seen like every single film that you can imagine. I, I read in the Criterion thing that, that he would go to see like five movies a day, like spend his whole day watching movies at the theater. I don't know if he bought tickets for every single one. but <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> um, yeah. See, he was very educated, uh, self-educated on film. Now, I mean, I'm looking up Dada real quick, which I've never heard of, you know. And I, I get the part of it when they describe it as like an early form of shock art. I get that as it applies to this movie. But as far as it all just not really meaning anything necessarily, I didn't actually get that vibe from this movie. It did seem to me that there was, there was like some connective tissue, even though I didn't fully grasp it. I'll tell you in the, the, the moment in the commentary when it made me think he was trying to make, or maybe unintentionally for making like a weird Dada flick. There's a scene with the lobster. Okay. <laughs> On my first viewing, I was like, okay, like, this is maybe going into some sort of surrealist territory. Like, is he trying to say something here? But in the commentary, he said it was just a joke, because apparently where he lives, like, they have these lobster posters everywhere. And so he was like, I don't know, I didn't know what to do next, so we just threw this lobster in here. And he was like, I, I thought it would surprise an audience. And I was like, well, there we go. I mean, this, he's not saying anything here. This is... No, that is a surprise. <laughs> but... He mentioned Godzilla numerous times during the commentary. And in retrospect, I felt like that just somehow blended with the Godzilla um, motif that was more especially apparent at, at the end of the movie. And then somehow, for some reason, Divine getting... <laughs> Raped by the lobster. Getting inseminated by a lobster. Like, somehow that played weirdly into the the Godzilla motif. Now, if I didn't even, if he hadn't have mentioned that, I probably wouldn't have been thinking about that. Not just for the lobster scene, but from from that till the end of the movie. I probably wouldn't have been thinking about that. But because he planted that Godzilla seed in my head, the lobster just made way more sense. It still doesn't make any sense. It's <laughs> Yeah, it's like, hey, we've got a giant lobster. Uh, I know, let's write it into the end of this movie. But he, had, but he had that lobster commissioned and made for the movie, so it's not like they just have the lobster sitting out. Yeah, but it still doesn't make any... There's, I mean, she does say something, um, I think after all those people are killed in, in the living room, and uh, she says something about stomping the town with one foot or something to that effect. But, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> and there is a... We do get the impression that... Uh, oh my gosh! Okay, so... Okay, uh, I'm watching right now the scene where it's Divine, her daughter Cookie... And the weatherman, Steve, yeah. who, who's the Eggman, actually, in the next movie. Yep. <laughs> and there's a, the, the, there's a poster of a lobster up on top above them, and uh, also a nun, uh, which follows the religious iconography that we see downstairs. The, oh, there you go. The mother of the Virgin Mary, or the statue of the Virgin Mary that's on the, uh, on the end table. So, yeah. 
I'm not going to read anything into no, that. No, but also, I mean, but all these scenes, like, in the, this is all, like, the, what you're describing, this was just John Waters' actual apartment as it was. Exactly. Yeah. So none of it was set up for the movie. This is just literally the way his place looked and the way he had it decorated for himself. I'm telling you, his writing process was sitting around his place stone and looking around his room being like, okay, what, what am I going to do for my next scene? Oh, uh, sitting on the table over there is that little kid. What's it called? The Pope of something? <laughs> Do you guys know what that kid is called? Yeah, I can't remember what he's called. I had never heard of that religious figure before, but it's it's an actual thing. I forget what country of origin it's from. He's got a little doll of that sitting on his table. So he's like, oh, okay, I'll just write that in there. Or uh, lobster on my wall. Or throw lobster in. I know. It's like, it's like what's his name? I know. It's like the end of uh, Unusual Suspects. Uh... With Kaiser Soze or whatever, yeah, and he yeah. realized that the whole thing was just made by the objects in the office. <laughs> We're not supposed to talk about that movie. That movie's been canceled. Right. Oh, right. fuck oh. no, fuck that. I don't believe that. I love that movie. Um, did they cancel Apt Pupil? Hopefully, piece of trash. <laughs> why would wait? Who's in that? That that uh, isn't that Brian Singer too? Didn't he direct that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, you're talking about Kevin Spacey. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking Brian Singer too, and I completely <laughs> forgot about Kevin Spacey. <laughs> well, Brian Brian Singer is also a little problematic too. Although I, I don't think he, he's never gotten caught, has he? Singer? No, I'm I'm pretty sure he did. Hey, he made me into a man at the age of thirteen, and I will never. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Oh, yeah. What? But what? getting back to the movie, yeah. <laughs> Hey, Brian Singer is a true mentor. The kind of guy that a young, professional boy needs in his life. Especially when he's taking a shower. Okay. Yeah, and ruining the X-Men films, ruining out people. Guy's a complete hack. Superman Returns, hack. Oh, let's not go (laughs) off into that territory right now. Yeah, anyway... (laughs) So this this I, I a special shout out to uh, one of my favorite actresses, Edith Macy, or is it Massey? I don't know. Massey. Massey, and um, I'm gonna give Eric a spoiler for Pink Flamingos because you can't mention Edith Massey without mentioning Pink Flam- Pink Flamingos and what she does in that. Oh, eggs, eggs, the yeah. Eggman. Oh <laughs> God, he's coming, the Eggman. So yeah, in real life, she owned like a thrift store, and so you know she was like, "Sure, Johnny, I'll be in your movie." Well, Eric, Edith Massey is the lady that owned that runs the bar, the fat lady with with the really high voice like this. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember her. In Pink Flamingos, she plays Divine's mother, <laughs> and basically she, the whole movie, she sits in a crib like a baby's crib, dressed in like with a nightgown on, and all she talks about is eggs. She's like, eggs, eggs. I want some eggs, Babs. When's the egg man coming? I'm just so hungry for eggs. That's all she talks about the whole movie is eggs. And it's absolutely delicious. <laughs> yeah, truly some amazing stuff. Like, it's it's so funny. <laughs> is it? I mean, for the next 10 years uh, of my life after seeing that, every time someone would mention an egg, or I'd, have, I'd be like, eggs, eggs, eggs. So... <laughs> Because both of you are apparently so familiar with John Waters and his other movies, wait, how did that happen? How did, how come you guys are steeped in it, and how come I missed the whole thing? Um, well, were you much of a counter counterculture cinema guy? Because I feel like he's a huge figure in that. I don't think so. I don't know. 
Because I don't even know what that consists of. Well, just like, you know, the weird stuff. <laughs> I mean, I I don't know how else to describe it. I've seen weird things here and there, but I never sought it out. And if I did stumble into it, it didn't lead me down a, a path or anything. Yeah, I was always just searching out weird shit. Partially because of my love of horror movies. Like, it just kind of pulls yeah. me in weird directions. Yeah. But... Yeah, I, I, uh, my, I know specifically, I, 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 I borrowed a book from the library called Cult Movies, uh, which I now own. Not the same book, but, um, and one of them was Pink Flamingos, and I made it a mission to see all the movies in the book. And, uh, oh, cool. Pink Flamingos, of course, was a hard one to get to, but once I saw it, and then I think I saw Serial Mom, which is freaking hilarious. And I, I think that was his last good movie, quite frankly. He kind of went down hill from there but he only made a couple of movies after that he's not he hasn't made any movies uh, in a long time i think in probably almost 20 maybe 15 years yeah um but uh yeah and from there on it was I, i'm gonna see all this stuff this this fascinates me and and horrifies me at the same time yeah when when we talked about serial mom last time i was like man i i i saw that movie but i just didn't remember a damn damn thing about it and so I just had to go and rewatch it, and yeah, it's you definitely gotta check that one, Eric. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty damn funny. It kind of loses some steam near the end, but it's still super fun. Kathleen Turner bludgeons a lady singing Annie with a rack of lamb. <laughs> it's so awesome. Who knew Kathleen Turner could be so fun? I, mean, I know, like that was <laughs> like that. It should be nominated for for an Oscar. <laughs> Fuck Francis McDormand in Nomadland. I'm not really serious. So again, there, again, being a guy who's never seen anything even <laughs> remotely like this movie, I'll tell you some of the things that, like, what did it remind me of that I have seen, even if it was loosely? Oh, this is a good question. So a lot of the the deadpan acting, which is not really intentional, just because, like you say, they're not really actors... So a lot of that reminded me of a lot of the random people we see throughout Linklater's Slacker movie. Um, because that movie, wow. Slacker, is a bunch of just random Austin people who are not actors. Many of them are literally people off the street. I mean, like, man on the street. And, you know, not actors. So a lot of the way people, some of the people talk in this movie reminded me of some of those people from that Linklater movie. And, and just like in that movie... A lot of them are just naturally really odd characters in uh, in Slacker, so there's that. But then something about the way people look and the way it's like, like you know, this is it doesn't seem like the real world for many reasons. Um, it kind of reminded me of just how the everyday people looked. Um, like if this, I know obviously this isn't black and white, but if it was in color, I imagine some of these people being like. Just side characters, like in uh, Edward Scissorhands. Just, there's something, I know that's a very colorful movie, but it's something about the aesthetic of this sort of mirrors some time and place in the world, but yet it doesn't. Um, like, who are, like, these people can't be real. I'm talking about this random side characters in Edward Scissorhands. And, and another thing that I guess is like that, but a more surreal or extreme example would be if you've seen like Natural Born Killers, but it reminds me of, do you remember in Natural Born Killers when what's her name, the heroine of the movie, um, when she's talking about what it was like when she lived with her parents and, and um, oh. 
uh, Dangerfield was like playing her abusive dad. Jesus, yeah. You guys, you remember that? Bit? Yes. But just that like weird story, and I know they made it look like it was like like eighties television is the way they made it look in the movie. But just those like larger than life people that you can't even take serious and you, you can't associate with being in the real world. Um, that's that's like this reminded me of that. Like this is this is outside of the norms of like reality. It only exists in where it exists. I think that's an excellent uh, example. Um, I used to hate natural born killers for years and years um, until I saw it again. Uh, and I'm like, well, this isn't as bad as I thought it was. You know, I, I don't like Woody Harrelson, but uh, yeah, okay, really? it's pretty it's pretty good. Yeah, he just creeps me out so and then much. Every time I heard a little guitar cue in the soundtrack, it yeah. just made me think of, of Pulp Fiction or Reservoir, or just Tarantino just using those musical cues. And I. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I, the thing about it, and I think you're really cool in, in mentioning natural born killers. That movie and this movie, who are the who are the protagonists and who are the antagonists? It's really none. There are everybody's just kind of an asshole, and they're just you know dealing with each other. And of course, at the end, they all die. Um, so I, you know, I mean, I personally in natural born, I don't I don't sympathize with Mickey and Mallory. I think that they're no. They're assholes. I mean, they fucking kill random people. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. So you know, it, it's it. You know, and it, this I wouldn't say it's a subgenre, but there are movies like that. Uh, oh, man, for some reason, man, man bites dog pops into my head. Have, have you all ever seen that movie? Never no. seen it, but wanted to see it. Yeah. Ooh. Is that what the one where they film? Like it's like a film crew following a serial killer. Uh, Leslie Vernon, uh, something, something Leslie Vernon. Yeah, that's a, sort of the same story right there. Yeah. Yeah, Leslie Vernon I've seen, but yeah, not Man Bites Dog, but. Hmm. Man Bites Dog is really good, but really. It's it's not gory, but it's very violent. There's a couple scenes that uh, I'm not sure I could watch again, but it's, mm. it's, it's played as a comedy, but I've never really thought any of it was funny. Um, I thought it was pretty horrific. I mean, you got to be really bad to ruffle my feathers. No cats are killed, though. Um, <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Yeah. We'll talk about the animal killing when we do uh, pink flamingos. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no spoilers there. <laughs> Eric is mentioning that a chicken dies in the milk in the making of uh, pink flamingos. Oh, now you're breaking up the spoilers. I mean, what's well, going on here? It's just one small scene, but you know what? Water said in one of his books that they cooked and ate the chicken, so it wasn't you know. Oh, there you go. A complete go. waste. Uh, but where do we go next to this film? Uh, uh, I'm waiting to hear Caleb's explanation or thoughts on the religious scene. Oh, uh, well. Yeah, I've got no fucking clue. What? <laughs> Again, I think I think it existed just purely for the shock value. In his commentary, John Waters said that he was kind of looking back at, like, uh, Louis Bonnell. But I don't see the comparison at all. I mean, maybe visually speaking he was making some sort of reference, but Bonnell is much more thought-provoking and thoughtful. That scene just seemed like it was purely for the shock value. Do you think that Mel Gibson saw this before he made The Passion of the Christ and that inspired him to make his own version? No, he was in us. He was in Australia, just fucking around in the wilderness back then. <laughs> I mean, I think there's something to what Caleb was saying, but you know, Sean said that was like his least favorite part of the whole movie. I mean, I haven't figured anything out in this movie yet, but I found it the most interesting segment of the whole movie. Oh wow! Huh. 
honestly, because because I think there's something a little bit more to it, uh, but I don't know what that is yet. And I did find it interesting because he did mention, of course, in his commentary, how he like he you know he went to two different um, religious schools during his K through 12 years. At the beginning, he was in a I can't remember what type of religious school he said it was. And then in like his middle school years, he was in public school. And then in his like high school years, he was in a Catholic school. Oh, that'll do it. That explains it. And he <laughs> talks about how he was very much a product of all three of those influences. Um, and that's interesting to me just in of itself. And because for it to take this wild turn into religious territory, it's remarkably detailed like this person knows what they're talking about and that's interesting there's such specific detail i absolutely agree it's it's straight from the bible believe it or not i have read the bible um i went to one of those schools too um except for the scene where he takes the the bread and the fish and he turns it into kids <laughs> I love in the commentary too. John Moore is like, "Oh, look at that! I bought the cheap tuna." Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's the okay. I don't like the scene being there. Uh, it slows the movie down, and tonally, it's just way out. But the Jesus scene is actually filmed really well. I mean, it, it really—it's not Mel Gibson, but it's—he did a pretty good job, and they're doing quite well. And I think it's probably because. They're not using sound. You can't hear the actors yelling. And by the way, the reason that the actors are yelling throughout this whole movie is because Waters was... Uh, he, he didn't have a, a separate audio track. He had to... Um, well, for some parts of the movie, he didn't. For other parts, he did. Oh, really? But yeah. But you're right. For this part in particular, yeah, he had no sound for this particular camera. But... I think the whole part of the point of the whole uh, Jesus scene was the juxtaposition of the lesbian sex. Uh, <laughs> so fucking gross and stupid. The lesbian sex in the church, you know, showing and then going through the stations of the cross. Does he mention in the in the commentary how he managed to get to get to film in a church? Yes, he yes. does. Yes, he does. <laughs> did Did the church people want to see the movie afterwards? And did they say anything about no, it? No. Uh... So they went there and to the church and, you know, they welcomed them in and they said they needed to do something over there, but they didn't explain what they didn't say they're necessarily making a movie. Um, and then, so they were, they were allowed in, but then one of the guys from the crew or whatever, um, got into a big conversation, uh, with the pastor in a, in a different room. And started talking to him about something about the Vietnam War or something, and engaged him uh -oh. in a conversation, and ran as like a distraction. So while the pastor was in the other room speaking to him, they just went off <laughs> and did all the things that they did, and unbeknownst to him, uh, and, and got it all done as quickly as they could and left. And then later, the pastor was invited to the first screening, uh, and then when he saw it, oh my, he was mortified. God. Oh, and they chose this church because. But this church was already established as like a public place where, um, like Black Panthers and other alt left mm -hmm. groups of the time, like they were welcome to have their little group meetings here. Like they were cool with it at the church already, so that's why they sought out this particular one. But they didn't explain what they're doing, as I said. And then the pastor was invited and saw the film, had no idea 
that all those things happened. Um, and he actually said, you know, he was he just didn't want Waters to ever reveal the actual location of the actual church. Um, but other than that, he was kind of like, yeah, okay, it is what it is. Like, okay, he, well, he just, he just didn't want the reputation of having like this is that same church that hmm. they used. Okay, so he was kind of a good sport about it. That's kind of cool because if that was my church, I would have been pissed off. Yeah, I wonder if he told him that the guy shooting up was legitimately shooting up. Oh yeah, and then Waters <laughs> mentioned how they did all that they did because you know they planned to have that whole scene, obviously. But the the guy shooting up that was just a complete random thing that the dude just did on the spot, and they just shot. And wait, 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 wait. Was he a was he a, a member of the crew? Was he just some guy that was? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he was yeah. part of the crew and everything, but it, that was not planned, according to Waters. Now they just decided on the day, but that he just did that and they just shot it and it was like, okay. But again, that's kind of what tells me that Waters isn't really trying to say anything here except for kind of pushing back and breaking yeah. down boundaries. Well, and... no, okay, I think that's part of it, certainly. Certainly. But I think there's a little bit more to it. I just haven't put my finger on it yet. Um, because no, no, there's nothing more to no, it. No, there's no, no, nothing no, no, no. more to even, it. Even if it's even if it's basic, there's something more to it. Um, and it's interesting too because, according to him, uh, like the woman, I can't remember her name, but the one who the one who she meets is it Mink, I think is yeah, her Mink name. Stoll. Yeah, Mink Mink Stoll. Mink Stoll is the actress's name too. According to Waters, like the way she looks in the movie for, and the thing with the um, <laughs> the uh, the rosary. He said that's how she would dress normally. He said she would just randomly wear rosaries. Like that was her that that was her thing, uh, you know, separate from the movie. That's that's why you gotta love, you gotta love this weird crew that he brought together. Yeah, I guess you do. The same thing about David. Uh, is it Lockery? Yes. D- yeah, David Lockery. He's like, yeah, you know, the way he looks and dressed in this movie, that's basically how he looked and dressed at the time too. And yeah, everything. he pretty much said everybody in this movie. This is how they just looked in their everyday lives. Yeah, it it makes me think of Ed Wood. Yes, I was just thinking that. Yes, like this weird crew coming together and making all these movies. <laughs> I, I love that. Okay, yes, it is like that. Pull the string. <laughs> Pull the string. Um, no, but there's something about the fact that the rosary and the crucifix and the rosary is obviously used um, in the sex act. The butt plug. Okay. <laughs> there's something. There's some connection he's making with that with the passion of the christ there's there's something there's a connection there this reminds me of years ago when i was doing the classic horror cast one of the very first episodes we did was night of the living dead and my co-hosts were all like oh this is a commentary about race because the 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 lead uh, uh, protagonist is a black man and i'm like guys no it's got nothing to do with race he just was the best audition and that's why Romero hired him he wasn't trying to make a statement about race or the Vietnam War or anything like that it is what it is there's nothing to read into here you know well I I I think that um when he wrote the script initially that was the case but I feel like when he was making it he just couldn't help but bleed that stuff in Mm. he's never such a political guy I mean I don't think Romero could help himself but be political in almost everything that he did Except for those last, you know, like 10 years, that's when he kind of lost it. But Survival of the Dead? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, 
Well, you know what? No, even those were political now that I think about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, they were just terribly done. <laughs> yeah, Survival of the Dead and Land of the Dead and Diary of the Dead. But we're getting, no, that's, that's a t- Yeah, and, and John Waters says that he's a pretty political dude as well. But I think his politics was always about just pushing against the mainstream. Yeah. I think that's what was always at the core of his ideology. But but not just but I don't think you're you're right, but I don't think you're getting as specific because because not only the mainstream of let's just say prudish conservatives of the day, but even the mainstream of the left of the day, because uh, he didn't consider himself part of the mainstream right or mainstream left at the time. And by mainstream left I mean even like the hippies and stuff. He didn't even consider himself part of that either. Um, yeah. And he says very specifically many times that in this movie and why he thinks it wasn't really popular at the time was because he was making fun of all of it. He was making fun of the establishment and making fun of the hippie movement. And he says a lot of times that, yes, they were in and around the hippie movement because that was the thing at the time, but that he kind of considered himself and his group of friends as not even being part of that per se that they were still their own like discrete group uh okay yeah i i guess um although i think that the opening of this movie with the cavalcade of crap or whatever it's called that's obviously uh, jabbing at the you know what he called the straights and that doesn't mean heterosexual as he says but that means you know the people who have nine to five jobs and and dress nice and go to cocktail parties and shit like that it's obviously poking fun at them because here they get to see this free show. They're all disgusted, yet not a single one of them is walking out the door. So yep. it's, it's kind of like us watching this movie, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that maybe the point was, maybe, is that, um, you know, just because you're quote-unquote straight doesn't mean that you can have a good time and you don't have to be ashamed to have a good time. Except for the guy who ate his barf. I think that wasn't a good time. And I, <laughs> that was pretty gross. Um, and, and yeah, okay, yeah. I, I, there's not a lot I have to say about this movie, and I, I, I can't help. And I brought this up before. If you're talking about, um, uh, uh, you know, a Clockwork Orange, it is inevitable that you are going to mention The Shining or 2001: A Space Odyssey or God help us, Eyes Wide Shut. You know, it's just like that with John Waters in the, in the except for Eric. You know, I, I view this in the context of comparing it to other earlier John Waters movies, and that's a detriment, and it's really not fair to the film at all. You kind of have to j- judge the film, and, and to do that, I'd probably have to see it two or three times, but ain't nobody got time for that. I've got a lot of work and a lot of drinking to do. So the real problem is it, it's clearly, clearly like an exercise, and it's not fully realized kind of flick. You talk about this movie? Yeah. Like, the stuff that he would do later, he clearly thought about more, kind of had more of a structure with what he was doing, maybe planned things out more ahead of time. This felt like it was just written on the fly. It does, but not as much as on the fly as you describe it to me. Because everything was pre-scripted, even if they did do things off-script when they actually shot. But he had all the beats... He would pre-script the, the scenes, but he wasn't. He didn't have like a full like layout of the film when he started shooting. He said like, "Yeah, I had some ideas where I wanted to go, but we kind of just you know played it by ear." I would write at the scenes. You can always tell that he, what scenes he was writing because he's got such distinctive uh, dialogue style. But yeah, you just throw in random shit all the time. 
when he was making this. I'm telling you, this is a play on just <laughs> even the words of the Passion of the Christ. <laughs> that seems definitely really, really stuck with you. <laughs> no, there's more going on here. I'm telling you. No, there's not. There's really not. no. There is, and, I, and I'm not saying it's mind blowing or anything, <laughs> but I'm saying it's not just a bunch of randomness. It's it's not. It's it is. I, I have read his books, and they literally just did this on the fly. I mean, no, 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 no. I I completely disagree. Like in Ed Wood, there may have been times when we're like, "Oh my God, here come the cops! Run!" No, that I agree with all of that, but. But even in the Ed Wood stuff, I mean, not the movie Ed Wood, but I mean, like, the real um, Plan 9 from Outer Space. And even though it was made on the fly just like that, I still think in Ed Wood's head there was an idea of how this all fits, even if it doesn't track with anybody outside of Ed Wood's mind. Well, the the difference with Ed Wood is he had such ambition that he was, like, he could see it all coming together in the end. I don't think yeah. John Waters really cared the whole thing was about kind of creative spirit well what i found interesting listening listening to the special features so you know when you listen to the commentary with with john waters you know it does sound kind of loosey-goosey because he's talking about how guerrilla style this whole movie was made and everything like on the spot in the moment yada 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 and that's how he talks about it in his own words but when you listen to the or when you watch the featurette that is interviews with all the the living um, players from the movie uh, and they're the cast and crew. And when they're interviewing them, when you listen to the way they talk about making this movie, they talk about how, like the way they describe him when he was making this movie s- sounds like it's describing a different person than him. The way he describes making this movie, because he sounds very loose and carefree and we're just doing what we were doing with what we had. But when you hear them talk about it, and I'm reading between the lines because they don't actually say this straightforwardly, but they make it sound like he knew exactly what he wanted and he wanted certain things to be a very certain kind of way. And they talk about how, like, we just didn't want to make him mad, you know, like, you know, they didn't because because if, if they made and it's funny because you think, oh, there's tons of little mistakes and flubs throughout this whole entire movie, like with people forgetting their lines or messing something up. But they talk about how. Um, you know, sometimes there there had to be a cut because something went really wrong and, and how infuriated he'd be and like you have to do it right and it has to be like this. And so I think there's a tale of two filmmakers, depending on if you listen to John Waters from his own mouth, but then when you listen to the other people's descriptions of things. So that's what I'm saying. He had like a really clear vision in his own mind, even though this movie feels super loose in so many ways. Because he wasn't just filming and like, oh, we'll just get what we get. He, he he had very specific things that he was going for and you know then the way they describe it like only he knew what that was you know because none of them understood none of them were you know filmmakers themselves they were just his friends um partaking hmm well i okay as somebody who did a lot of school projects uh by just basically filming movies and shit because that was easier than writing a paper I guess I could understand because I was always very adamant that it'd be this way and that way. And I was a little uh, tyrant. Um, but I, at the, I think at the end of the day, he just wanted to make a weird weirdo movie with some bizarro shit. Uh, you know, that, uh, uh, well, he said he wanted to do everything. He wanted to do every 
like the most shocking thing he could do within the bounds of what it was allowed of in film at the time. Uh, wow. Okay. Well, uh... because he talks about when this movie was <laughs> when they were going to try to um, because it never got rated initially by any yeah. rating board because it never showed it at an actual movie theater, so it didn't have to. But he talks about I can't remember. Maybe Caleb remembers better than me. But it was like something like 1980 or something, and it was going to be released for the first time in like a legitimate theater, and therefore it had to get rated or whatever properly uh, for content. And he talks about uh, the people who watched it. Um, and he said one of them. He said one of them was a, a religious background. This woman who had watched yeah, it for the Catholic. ratings board, and and how she was so appalled, especially by the the church scene in the pews, and that she was speaking to her counterpart, saying like, "Oh, this has like they have to be violating something here." Uh, and <laughs> and whoever her counterpart was was saying, "But no, not really." Like, yeah, she went to a judge. Yeah, she was like, I don't, I, I don't know if I can get anything done with this movie, but you have to like find some legal way to get rid of this movie. It sounded like. <laughs> yeah, and then they, they really couldn't because there was no basis because he literally did everything, like everything that's in this movie had already been established in other movies. So it's just, but again, he was like pushing the boundaries as far as he could while still staying within the established bounds at the time. And then after he finished the movie, he said, "Wait." I haven't pushed the boundaries far enough. And that's when he wrote Pink Flamingos. Well, because, yeah, well, yeah. but then he says that at a certain point that once everything basically became legal in film, then that's when he said he was done because there was no other way to push boundaries. So I guess, I don't know, something like shortly after Pink Flamingos, he, I, that was no longer his thing because he felt like that that was done. Well, yeah, yeah, that's, that's uh, you know, he made Polyester, which is just kind of a weird movie. I, I don't remember the movie that well. I know Tab Hunter's in it. Uh, there was a great documentary about Tab Hunter on Netflix, made by the same guy that made the documentary about Divine. And oh. Tab Hunter, wow. I had no idea. Anyway, uh, and then he made Hairspray, which, of course, got a G rating. John Waters <laughs> made a movie with a G rating. And I am convinced... Well, no, I'm not. I, I'm surprised that it got a G rating. I, I would thought it would give him a PG rating because we have a man playing a woman and somebody would be pissed off about that. Um, did you know that John Travolta played the divine role in Hairspray on, uh, on, on stage? John Travolta, Harvey Weinstein. Well, that's no, not Harvey Weinstein, Harvey Feinstein. God, I bet you, I bet you he's really sick and tired of that. But Travolta was in the movie too, the, the remake. There's a remake of Hairspray? Oh yeah, you never seen that? Yeah, it came out in, like I think two thousand seven, maybe. Yeah, it had uh, Amanda Bynes. Oh, I seem to remember this now. Christopher Walken was in it. Yeah, it was okay. It was definitely very, very different. That it lost all that weird energy from the John Waters film, but it was okay. Yeah. And uh, and then that was sort of like his middle period, and then he went on to make Serial Mom and Cecil B. Demented and this other movie that I can't remember the name of. Yeah, he made Pecker and uh, a Dirty Oh, Pecker. Chain. Yes, Pecker. Full of grace, full of grace. You know, (laughs) I've seen part of Pecker years ago, and I remember being like, like, it's okay, but eh." it's that's exactly. I mean, it's better than multiple maniacs, um, but it's got a few like really funny lines in it. Like, uh, who's the kid that plays Pecker from the Terminator? I can't remember his name. Uh, Uh, Oh, Furlough. Was it it? Edward Furlong? Yeah, Edward Furlong. Yeah. Oh, oh I heard and about that. Uh, 
I think Christina Ricci plays his girlfriend and she works in a laundromat. I don't remember. And sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he takes a lot of photographs and then like somebody sees his photographs. Anyway, his sister is played, I think by Martha Plimpton, but I may be wrong, but she's obsessed with gay men. And there's a scene where she's sitting on the bus and her, her brother's in the newspaper and she's like, look. And she says this, the stranger next to her, look, my brother's in the newspaper. And he's like, okay. And she goes, are you a homosexual? He's like, no. She goes, then you wouldn't understand. <laughs> anyway, those movies have their moments. I, I've, I've never seen Cecil be demented. Um, but I heard, I haven't heard good things. So, Serial Mom is probably the best. I'll tell you, I've literally never heard of any of his movies except for Hairspray and I think Crybaby. And that's it. The others, I've never, literally never even heard the titles before. Yeah, I think those two are probably his most mainstream. Those are the ones I would actually see on TV playing. I'd never seen any of his other movies playing on TV. So, Is Crybaby Johnny Depp's, like, first movie? Well, Nightmare on Elm Street, but... Oh, that's right. Idiot, Sean. Idiot. And it was 1990 Crybaby, I think. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he had some other stuff in the 80s, just like smaller roles. Hmm. Oh, he was in Platoon. Oh, yeah. Was he? Yeah. Wow, that's a movie I never go back to ever. Um. Yeah, okay. This Back to uh, uh, multiple oh, maniacs. Oh, yeah, um, Maniacs, yeah. Uh, there's a scene I'm watching right now, and again, this, you know, I... European realism movies like La Ventura by um, I don't remember his name it starts with an M though uh, somebody listening is like oh it's blah 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 you <laughs> but I think he tries to go with like this Italian realism in some parts especially there's two, two there's two scenes and they're adjacent to each other it's when Minkstall is talking to Divine on the sidewalk outside the church and it's a very long shot and they're having a conversation it actually seems very organic and then that's juxt- juxtaposed. I just used that word twice in the same in the same podcast with um, David Lockery and what's her name in bed. And it's they're just too long. The scenes are just too damn long, except for one joke. And that's when he goes down on her and he comes back up and he pulls the hair out of his mouth. And he goes, "Someone's been with you, hasn't hasn't haven't they?" And she's like, "No, they haven't. No, they haven't. No, they haven't." Oh wait, there's this one old lady. <laughs> That's such a John Waters moment. I'm like, hey, yeah. This guy, even when the scenes are, I'm not loving the scene, he still finds a way to just pull me back in. Yeah, yeah. But it still goes on for way too long. And I've never seen that in any other John Waters movie before. So I think that maybe after watching this, you know, he kind of learned about brevity and all that. Yeah, he learned how to edit properly. Well, he, but he also talks about how some of the takes are really long and some of the cast members talk about it because it was just too expensive to to do cuts so they say virtually every scene in this movie was all done in one take like every scene um Hmm. so yeah and and that's what part of what would make them afraid they said because like those two long scenes you just talked about well especially the second one in the bedroom or in the apartment um they talk about how they were so deathly afraid to forget their lines or because they knew that John Waters would get pissed because of the cost of the film and they, they, cause there was no edits. So if they made a mistake, they had to start all the way back at the beginning uh, of the scene and do the whole thing again in a whole take. So that was, and that, that was mainly because of, of the cameras and the film and everything was, was why that. 
Another fun thing in this movie, and uh, I think they did it better. I keep going to Pink Flamingos, which is bad. It's not fair. But when they shoot on the street, you always get these, uh, I was going to say civilians, like I'm in the army. But you get these, uh, you know, people on the street in the background looking. Uh, there's a scene outside the, the, the bar with Divine Mink stolen the cop. And you've got this old lady that peeks her head out of like a, 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 a dinette or something. And she's watching the whole filming. It's like. I love that. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's it's so charming in a way. Well, it you works, know? though. It, yeah. It, it, they look like they're part of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And they, they probably had no fucking idea, and they went to their graves not knowing that they were in, uh, you know, a movie that's on the Criterion Collection now. Yeah, and then he also talks about, like, at the end, um, during the Godzilla scene, and then there's all the people running, uh... Uh, down the street and some of them were in the movie but others were just random people who were out in the street and they just saw them running and they just joined in so you know mm. Mm. what do you think about that sequence Eric because you, you've gone back to a, a number of times do you think it works well it works when I listen to the commentary it works in, in and in the commentary he alludes to this earlier in the movie because uh, he talks about how divine like first of all, she never, according to him, she never considered herself like a transsexual or transvestite or anything like that. He he said the divine always considered themselves as just a gay man, and that when they would dress up, it was just to dress up, but not necessarily in in a trans kind of way. Wait, 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 wait. I I don't want to be like you know mansplaining shit, uh, but uh, it, it it wasn't he wasn't trans. He was basically just a man. Uh, who occasionally dressed up. Uh, it might be, a, nowadays it would be a drag queen, but I think you can just call him transvestite back then. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But what I'm saying is that, well, half of it is what you were just saying, is that he just happened to be a gay man who would dress up in this thing, but it wasn't, it wasn't because it was his thing to necessarily dress like a woman. Yeah, it wasn't his identity. He He didn't identify as female. Right, but it's not even that. He didn't even identify as necessarily a drag queen either. Um, yeah. Because uh, the way John Waters described it, because he was saying that, that, like, for instance, the drag community, they were not fans of Divine, at least at this time. Uh, maybe later. Yeah. But at this time, no, yeah. because he said um, they sort of took offense to Divine, the, the drag community, yeah. because the drag community, they wanted to look beautiful and look like yeah. you know Jane Mansfield and gorgeous and whatever and that Divine was so gaudy and like ugh and that, yeah. so they were not down with that and then he was saying that so Divine's thing was not necessarily to dress like a woman but to just be monstrous in general like yeah. like offensive yeah. and monstrous and, and in a way they were actually kind of making fun of the drag community in a way with the Divine mm -hmm. character mm -hmm. he says and then he was talking about, yeah, Divine was more interested in just being a monster, like Godzilla, just uh, like mm -hmm. that. And he says that earlier on in the commentary. And I didn't know that at the end he was like, all right, now we're going full Godzilla. And and then I thought, yeah, this like has all the makeup of that. Uh, like I could see it. I could see like it was like a Godzilla movie leading up to the, um, the climax and the all out Godzilla goes full Godzilla. And then just seeing the army soldiers, you know, just reminded me of like the army trying to take down Godzilla, and Godzilla's just 
doing full mayhem and the monster has to fall but it's like this beloved monster who causes so much destruction and i don't know that whole metaphor just made perfect sense to me well i think you may be right but i'm not a fan of godzilla pictures so i can't really comment on that i understand but just the idea of godzilla and and we know how the formula goes even if we haven't seen the movies uh and that made a lot of sense to me like this lovable monster this anti-hero yeah i don't it completely (laughs) yeah it completely makes sense in a weird way so i i think at the end of the day i mean i didn't listen to it but you guys did is that this movie is a lot better with the commentary yes oh certainly (laughs) certainly like the seventh seal this movie is so much better with the commentary because i would have been so lost without it and Waters does great commentary on every single one of his films. Like, if there's a callback to something from his childhood, he'll call that out, you know. Um, yeah, but yeah. I, I could listen to that commentary without the movie and, and still enjoy the hell out of it. Yeah. The movie, it really works at the beginning for me, and by the end, I'm, I, it's just it's lost me. Yeah. I actually got up to go to the bathroom while it was running in the background. And I think that may have they, that may have been. I, so weird. It, yeah, it may have been during the lobster rape scene because that scene goes on for like three or four minutes when it should have been like a minute. Oh. It's like okay, we've got this giant lobster. Let's film as much of it as we possibly fucking can. I, I love that just for how absolutely absurd it is. I love the lobster. <laughs> Leaves its leg behind. I noticed that even without the commentary, it's like, oh, oh really? My God, I can't believe it. <laughs> that was unintentional, but yeah. And John Waters, he's got such a funny sense of humor. He like focuses right on it, so you can see it's there. <laughs> there are there are other little touches too that I enjoyed. I mean, the the church scene that was kind of like, oh my God, I can't fucking believe they did that. But then mm-hmm. I had to have a laugh at the end of it when Mink Stole takes out a handkerchief and wipes down oh. the rosary. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, now we're... You gotta put that in some hot water and soap, girl. That ain't gonna do it. (laughs) I did like that. Yeah, she just tucks it away in her purse afterwards, too. It's like, oh, oh." wrapped up in that tissue, at least. No, I think it's just weird because I think, because both of you kind of sound like you're on the same page describing the movie overall, but I was the opposite. I was more thrown and lost by the cavalcade and not feeling like man is this how this whole movie's gonna be uh like i don't know if i can deal with this but then once i got the semblance of the story and the jealousy the love triangle and then like everything just started making more sense to me and so i was more into the Hmm. movie after the cavalcade business Um, okay and and it's interesting it it seemed much more realistic uh post cavalcade (laughs) compared to pre or more grounded well now now I'm absolutely fascinated to see what you're going to think of Pink Flamingos. Yeah, it's... Yeah. I don't want to say anything else about that. But yeah. I hope you guys aren't building it up too much, because I hate when that unintentionally happens. Yeah, we shouldn't <laughs> talk about it anymore, but... I don't think you could build that movie up too much, because, I mean, what's there to really build on? But, but anyway, I, uh, Eric, I, maybe I have a theory for you with the, uh, what would you call it, rosary job juxtaposed to the Stations of Christ. Maybe he's just saying that it's all full of shit. Well, <laughs> that's all I got. Well, I think it's more nuanced than that. I think it's more nuanced than that. I mean, you're probably right in spirit, but I think it's more nuanced than that, the way he's trying to tell it. I think it's understa- underselling what, what he's actually done in the movie. Uh, or what? No, I, 
because he, he is doing the things that you guys said he's doing with that scene, but he, but he's also, it is like his nephew to the church in a way, um, but I feel like it's multifaceted. Uh, all the things that he's trying to say with that whole long sequence. Well, I'll leave that college paper for you to write. I, I wouldn't go near that for my, uh, I wouldn't come up with enough. But uh, do, you, do you guys feel like you have much more to say in the movie? Because I, I don't know what I've got left. I don't got much left. Um, I didn't really pay attention to the end after she gets raped by the lobster and then goes on the run, frothing at the mouth and smashing uh, the windows of some perfectly good classic cars. Oh, that bugged the hell out of me. I'm like, don't do that. That car's 20 years old. She did it for like five minutes, too. I was like, oh, my God. I, I just <laughs> yeah. want to mention... The whole Gaylord thing, which is not in the movie, it has nothing to do with the movie specifically, but it's just a weird, interesting anecdote in the commentary. Um, so, John Waters talks about so David Lockery, the one who plays the Carnival Barker, the MC, um, the guy who looks much older than 25 that he was at the time. Actually, they all look yeah. older than the ages that they were at the time. But anyway, um, he talks about when they were making Mondo Trash Show. There was some scene they did that got them arrested uh, when they were shooting it. Um, and he talks about how like David Lockery got arrested and they had to go before a judge and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then, and then it, the, the arrest got reported like in the newspaper. And he said that for whatever reason, David Lockery, the way, he, the way Waters said, he said that a policeman wrote down David Lockery's name as David Gaylord Lockery. Um, as if his middle name was Gaylord, which it is not. But they published it in the paper that David Gaylord Lockery was arrested and whatever, and that supposedly David saw that. When he saw that, he was out of his mind pissed because he, he just... They, like, the, like, the police did that as a joke or something, and he was out of his mind about it. John Waters said they did it as a homophobic slur against him, so no more than a joke. Yes, they, I forgot. That is what Waters said, that, that he took offense like that was a homophobic slur that they had given him that made-up middle name. So are you saying that David Lockery was gay? <laughs> no, I can't tell sometimes. I, I don't know for sure if he was gay or not, but he seems pretty gay. The cop certainly thought he was. He probably slept, slept with all of them, so maybe he was, like, omnisexual or something. Well, it's, it feels go. like they all fall into or don't fall into established categories like everyone in this troupe. There's one guy and that's uh, the handsome guy, Ricky. Is it Rick? Rick or Ricky, uh, Divine's lover or side lover, I think. Really good looking guy, long hair, perfect face. I think he was in this and he was like, shit, you know what? If I want a serious career, I'm going to have to get the fuck out of here. I'm not coming back again because he doesn't appear in any other movies that I know of. Oh, the guy who played Jesus actually went on to have a very prolific career uh, behind the camera on a lot of, or a few uh, big budget Hollywood type movies, which was interesting. Oh, I for, we forgot to talk about, and you know, I almost missed this. When she kills uh, David and she pulls his guts out of his body. <laughs> it's so corny. And I think that's the intention. John Waters didn't take any of this seriously. Like, he, he wasn't trying to be Visconti. He was just trying to be gross. Uh, and and then he went on to do more, but yeah. That's that Donna element. It's just so random and just so over the top. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. You've got her pulling her gut, his guts out and eating it and laughing at it, and then a minute later, she's raped by a lobster. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, the more I'm talking about this, the more I kind of like it. Uh, I think maybe this deserves repeated viewings, definitely with the commentary for me. Yeah, it could be better in repeated viewings. That's very true. Yeah. Now, where did the lobster come from? Because when I was watching it earlier, I couldn't really pay attention to the visuals, so I more listened to it. So where did the lobster come from? It just came into the room? Yeah, it, it just showed up in the room. Yeah, it just it was like a hand of God that came down and turned Divine into a rage monster. Oh, so it's like a deus ex deus. Oh, you took the words out of my mouth. Shit, I haven't said that in so long. And then <laughs> yeah. when I was listening to the commentary earlier in the movie... I heard him mention, like, the lobster and, you know, this would lead to the lobster. And I had no context. I didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't know there was going to be an actual lobster movie. So when I heard him saying, you know, this would lead to the lobster or eventually you get the lobster. Wait. What? Are, are you saying that you watched the movie with the commentary for your first viewing? Um, not at first, but then I did because it became easier that way. Yes. Oh, so you didn't, you didn't watch the movie all the way through without the commentary. Correct. Correct. I can't believe this. I can't believe I do a podcast with a monster that does that. No, but I've done that with certain other movies. And the, they were mostly not John Waters movies as well, I will mention. Wow, I could never imagine. I that. don't want to know what other movies don't tell me which movies. Well, sometimes, well, in this case, well, I needed a little bit of assist getting through this at first. But, um, but sometimes I just do it for um, time-constrained reasons. But anyway... Mm-hmm. So I heard him mention the lobster, and I had no idea there was going to actually be a lobster. So when I heard him mentioning a lobster early on, I don't know why my mind just assumed he was talking about the movie The Lobster with, um, with, um, <laughs> is it, what's his name? Um, Co- uh, is it Colin Farrell? Co- yeah. Colin Farrell, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. So for some reason, I thought he was talking about that movie, and that, and so my mind was like filling things in. Uh, that weren't there, which was, oh, like somehow he influenced that movie or somehow the surrealism of this movie made way for the surrealism of the lobster movie. And that's honestly what I thought. I didn't think he was talking about the actual lobster that was going to appear in the movie. That's well, all. <laughs> you know, Eric, I think this, I think that would have definitely changed how you would have viewed the movie. <laughs> if what? I mean, if you just watched it straight. Well, it would have been a lot more difficult. Uh, exactly. That, that's because you're kind of surprised at me at Sean's reaction to it. Yeah, I, I I feel cheated that you didn't have to suffer quite as much as Caleb and I did. I didn't suffer. I, I suffered a okay. little just right. the beginning, but I didn't suffer really after that. Well, again, it's like I said, I really enjoyed listening to the commentary and watching the movie with it. But the movie on its own, at a certain point, it turns and just becomes kind of dry and almost into a grading category look don't get me wrong i'm not saying i love this movie no i'm just explaining why i'm just explaining why me and sean maybe have a different view of how the last the latter half of it turns out than you than you do i get that i totally get it you know another thing it reminds me of i've been thinking about this whole time uh we've been talking i mean like (laughs) you know like i always loved um the movie help you know, the Beatles. And that movie starts off somewhat straightforward at the beginning. Um, and it, you know, kind of goes all over the place and almost feels, I don't know what you would call it, that it feels like. I was going to say like Monty Python, but not really. 
not that. I don't know what to call it. Um, and then at a certain point, the movie just completely goes off the rails in terms of it's not even trying anymore to have any semblance of a story. And, and it almost seems like they're just goofing around and stuff. Um, but it's fine. It all works. It, it's it, in, in a lot of it's just like, hey, we're just doing this because we're here and there's this thing and we're just going to do this on the camera. And so a lot of this reminds me of that. And of course, I think I've seen, you know, the three Beatles movies that feature them. And, you know, Hard Day's Night's pretty straightforward. Help kind of gets into more experimental territory. And I don't know if you've ever seen Magical Mystery Tour, but, yes. you know, that's something like this, too. Like, that's just like, what the fuck? Uh- <laughs> yeah, Magical Mystery Tour is like somebody, like, took a video camera and filmed a bunch of old people and then for an hour and they're like, okay, let's go home. But, yeah, there's no plot. There's no nothing. Uh, yeah, it's like, terrible. Yeah, it is, I guess. Uh, but, so, you know, that's it's another kind of movie. Like, well, this is focus on help. But it's just, it is what it is. Except I just happen to love that movie. Even though a lot of it just seems spontaneous and on the fly and nonsensical. But, I don't know. I guess, I don't know. That was the thing our two people were doing with cameras at the time. Well, those were perfect. Well, were they perfect? Yeah, those were professional people for the most part. These people in this movie are not professional. No, certainly um, not. They're just making... And, and, you know, I do wonder... Uh, let me think. I mean, what really put John Waters on the map? I mean, was it Pink Flamingos? I, I don't know how he went from that to Serial Mom. Um, I think it was Polyester. Yeah. Yeah. That was the first one that played in real cinemas. It got more traction. Mm-hmm. Pink Flamingos, it played like the independent circuit and all the weirdos. It was like kind of like an El Topo, like a midnight movie type. Yeah, polyester was much more crowd pleaser, and mm-hmm. yeah, that's what got him all those other gigs. And polyester is is a show, a movie where they you'd walk into the theater and they'd give you a, a scratch and sniff card that had like you know twenty different smells on it, and then throughout the movie, while you're watching it, a number would go on the screen like number three, and you're supposed to scratch and sniff number three on the on the scratch and sniff card. It'd be like the smell of like farts or something like that, or you know, eggs or bacon. Dancing asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I hate the smell of dancing asshole. Um, but I, I'd love to get a hold of one of those smell of vision or whatever they were called. Uh, one of those cards that they would hand them out at the theater. What was that old 50s? Uh, was it William Castle? Like he, he pulled out in a gig. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of fun. I've got just a few more things to say. Okay, I'm sorry, Eric. I'm no, you're sorry. fine. No, you're fine. You're fine. It's just um, some other things of note to me. This movie is incredibly restored. Yes. And, and considering its origins and history and everything, it's just so strange how remarkably restored it is. It is so pristine for for the movie that it is. Uh, the way John Waters tells it, he 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 owes it to. The film stock uh the type of cameras they used to film this was he said the same type of cameras they used for um uh like evening news in, in those days was the same type yeah, of cameras he, uh, i think he borrowed the, the camera from a television station yeah and he talks about he just you know because he kept this movie and pink, pink flamingos he said like in like a storage unit like in baltimore for almost 30 years in in non-climate controlled 
uh, storage unit and to when he went to go fish them out and look at it look at it and he, and he talks about how like he talks about how Cleopatra was in storage for a long time and came out all faded and whatnot and then look at his movie uh, look how he's like yeah anyway so there's something about that and it, and it is jarring because it is such a homespun type of movie and to see it look like near perfection is interesting and he talks about how when Criterion Janice approached him because they told him hey we'd like to you know restore it. we'd like to select your movie and restore it and do all the all the business um, leading up to the 2016 2017 release um, and he said they asked him like you know there's you know there's like scratches and other things going on and they asked him like how much do you want us to restore this like how much of it do you want us to leave in and he said he told him no go all the way he's like restore it all the way yeah <laughs> he, why not like, I don't mind well you know some you know directors might want a little bit of that still in it but he said no go ahead make it look as good as you can possibly make it look which they do um it's it's just so jarring considering what it is and he but he also mentions how you know how the opening credits look and he talks about how uh he didn't i can't, I can't remember the term but basically it was something like butcher paper and they had like yeah. a really long piece of it you know shelving paper shelving paper yeah that's right and you know how they just did it and then you know and he talked about how there was a little part where he had to make a correction and he like you know cut out you know a separate piece and just pasted it on top do you remember seeing that yeah. in the opening credits he said that the the closing credits for the movie that was completely made brand new uh in 2016 and he talks about how they did such a homage to the original opening credits because they look pretty perfect at the end but they intentionally made a fake splice uh, for that same actor's name, just to just to keep it keep it uh, in line with the original opening, I like little touches like that. Um, and then there's something about Divine and her makeup, and and Waters talks about how Divine was like, like she kind of worshipped Elizabeth Taylor, so she was doing like <laughs> her own gaudy version of Elizabeth Taylor. I love that, especially during like the killing scene at the end, and then the lobster rape scene. During that whole section, like Divine looks so crazy, and, and, and her makeup completely adds to it. And she looks like the Joker at one point, um, and then she looks like Ursula from uh, Little Mermaid. So okay, okay, Ursula from The Little Mermaid was inspired by Divine. Okay, Absolutely. okay. Yes. So I figured that's why I brought it up because I, like I said, I think there's all these little waters, and I'll be looking for them in future movies I watch. Like, because now at least I have some frame of reference for John Waters, and I'll really be looking for them. Do you remember what John Waters said about Elizabeth Taylor? Um, he said a few things, but I'm not sure which one you're referring to now. Yeah, he said, because uh, he was talking about how, yeah, Divine, like, worshipped Elizabeth Taylor and would, like, uh, smoke the same cigarettes as her solely because she smoked them. Right. And John Waters like, yeah, I met Elizabeth Taylor later in life, and oddly enough, she kind of looked like Divine. Oh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I remember that. I, remember I was like, that. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> oh. He's got such a funny sense of humor, that guy. Just so avoided. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, listening to the commentary of Pink Flamingos, which is another... I keep going back to Pink Flamingos. It's not fair. How can you not? This is like a diet version. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, I want Pink Flamingos. I want to watch Pink Flamingos 
right now. Mm-hmm. Let's do a commentary. <laughs> oh, um, God. <laughs> but I remember the dancing asshole scene in Pink Flamingos. He's like, so this person, I don't know. I'm not going to say their name because they don't want to be seen. But I met them at, you know, uh, one of the, the screenings. I give him a southern accent. I don't know why. And he's like, they have a perfectly normal office job. They don't know. They don't want us to know who they are. It's just like he says these things about the people that were in the movie. Uh, it's just like, I kind of wanted to know that. I'm really glad you said that. You are actually telling me everything about this movie that I want to know. And his books are even better. He's so cool. I it, when when John Waters dies, which which I hope will not be uh, very soon. Yeah, I, I will be very sad. Yeah, do you guys know? Because I, I know he said that he um, got the cameras and stuff from a news uh, station. Did he used to work in news or reporting? I don't think so. I don't remember him ever saying that. Uh, at least. Yeah, just judging the way that he does commentaries, it's like he knows exactly the questions that the audience would want to ask. And he just answers it. You know, I, I, I think it's because he probably listened to a lot of commentaries himself. Because mm. uh, he's that into film. And of course, the style of Pink Flamingos, it feels like such a comment on the media and him kind of playing like an absurdist reporter. So <laughs> and I wanted to mention we, we missed we missed his birthday by one day. Um, really? His birthday was yesterday, April 22nd. How old is he? 70. He just turned 75 yesterday. Really? Oh, my God. I would never think he was that old. My mom just turned 71. Wow. Jeez. And he's uh, one year older exactly than Jack Nicholson because they have the same birthday. But Wow. Jack Nicholson year. looks like he's 80-something, although I haven't <laughs> seen him since The Departed. I wasn't going to say what I was like. Yeah, he's aged much better, better than Nicholson. <laughs> of course, Jack Nicholson is smoking and I don't know how that man could still be alive. I was about to say, yeah, they're both smoking and drinking and doing drugs up a storm. Like, surprised if uh, John Waters looks as good as he does. Yeah, well, I don't think John Waters uh, smokes or anymore, or you know, he may drink. But I would recommend Eric going and, and looking for as many John Waters movies as you can. I mean, there's not that much. Well, we'll see because they're mostly not findable. And and, and 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 listen to the commentaries. He does great commentary, um, very informative about the film. Like I said, much better than 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 William Friedkin. You know, um, so yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd still say watch the movies for you. Listen to the commentary. Well, well okay, yeah, <laughs> Caleb's right. Yes, yes. Especially if it's well, serious. I usually <laughs> do, but you know, there's certain situations where I don't always adhere to that. And and Eric, you have to understand, if you had never seen a John Waters movie before, and you watch something like Serial Mom, which is a movie with money and Kathleen Turner and Sam Waterston and all that shit, Matthew Lillard and Ricky Lake, you know, you'd think, oh my God, this is a straight-to-video piece of shit. But Aww. if you realize that it's a John Waters movie, you get it. You know, you just yeah. kind of get it, yeah. and and you really appreciate the fact that it's Kathleen Turner in this role. And I'm not going to tell you what the movie's about. It's actually in the title, but yeah, great stuff. Yeah, I don't know if you'd feel that way, especially in the the early '90s. I mean, so much was living in that kind of weird style. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know if you guys are, but I'm gonna I'm gonna rate this because I have to. Okay. I uh, rated it uh, of what? Uh, what are you rating? Out of five, what what item are we rating it out of? There's just so many choices. Okay. Do you want me to decide? Yes, please. 
how many out of five? How many out of five puke eaters do you okay. rate this? That was actually not the worst thing you could have said. But uh, okay. a fun fact: he was actually eating cream corn during the production of the movie. Um, oh yeah. I was going to say chick-covered rosaries, but that's just me. That's what I was fearing. Oh, yeah, that would have been. Yeah, how many poop-tainted rosaries? Because no, that would probably shade my score if you change the denomination to that. What? Um, I'm, I'm going to go with you the puke eaters. I always say, I've always said in past old podcasts that, you know, like to Josh or whoever, you know, depending on what you choose, is the you know, denomination could change my score. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm going to go with puke eaters. Uh, and um, I'm giving it two puke eaters out of five. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I want to say, uh, you guys can rate if you want, but uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, I have to say this too, because I kind of like looked into this earlier. Um, with the critics, it is 100%. Um, with the audience, it's 73%. Um, I also know that of all the John Waters movies on Rotten Tomatoes, it has the highest tomato rating. Tomato rating of all the John Waters movies on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, what's the blurb say? The blurb says, The Cavalcade of Perversion, a traveling freak show, is a front for a band of psychotic kidnappers and murderers. Oh, no one brought up all the uh, uh, Sharon Tate uh, references and... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. By the way, the IM the IMDb summary at the top says three women gather together to solve the Sharon Tate murders. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I don't know where the fuck that came from. That was before the movie was re released. Just read that in a magazine or something. Caleb, what are you gonna rate it? Uh, well, I, I what the fuck am I gonna rate the movie like? This? I know. I mean, <laughs> I know. Like you know, it's like it's like when when Pink Flamingos was re released. Roger Ebert didn't rate it. He gave it an N.A. I was thinking N.A. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. He did the same thing with Human Centipede because, like, this movie is gross. It's kind of unenjoyable, but it does exactly what it intends to do. See, nothing is N.A. to me. Nothing because I'm always going to have a feeling to whatever it is, and I can, I can, I can tr- translate that into into numbers. Okay. Score, speaking for myself. Is is your rating, Eric? Is it like rating your personal enjoyment, or are you rating like the quality of the film? Uh, it varies. It, you know, if you listen to when I rate things on Best Pictures, sometimes I lean towards my personal feeling. Sometimes I lean towards quality of the film. So I'm I'm inconsistent in that. But if you really want to get down to it, I used to subscribe to Rolling Stone magazine in, in the early '90s, and the way they would rate albums. That's always in my. If you want to know the inner workings of how I rate things, I always remember um, they would print what their scale was in Rolling Stone. And one star was poor, two was fair, three was good, four was excellent, and five is classic. So those words, that's how I always judge everything I ever write. Now you guys know my inside baseball. So when I look at this movie and I go, ah, this is fair, then that's a two. Well, if if I was going to give it any number, I guess I would give it a a two as well. I mean, I enjoy parts of it quite a bit, um, but it just can't sustain its runtime. He wasn't quite aware of how to complete a feature i don't think at this point i think he gets it in pink flamingos so i mean that, that's i love fun. the ending the ending works for me for this movie yeah but you were so you're so guided by the godzilla kind of uh, interpretation i feel like you just watched it blind 
But that works though, like a culminate, like I mean, but no, because there are plenty of movies where I go, what was that ending? Or it just fizzled, or it just went nowhere. But this, like, makes sense, like the death of the monster that Divine is. It makes sense. And then, and then calling the lobster Deus Ex Machina actually made all the sense in the world once we once we discussed it, because that it did feel like this horrid character or person divine she's basically the winner at that point in the movie and then literally like the hand of god comes in and like smites her like for some reason that makes all the sense in the world to me yeah to me it 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 felt like a clumsy kind of um shoving a whole bunch of ideas in to push it out to be a feature length and it just didn't quite come together that's that's my ultimate thoughts and the the sharon tate stuff was interesting and and the connection to to, um, um, yeah, I don't get that. Wait, what's his name? Uh, David? No, I want to say Mar- Manson? Charles Manson. All I could think was Marilyn Manson. Charles Manson. Because it was interesting because he was talking about how when they were making the movie, everybody was aware of the Sharon Tate murder. But at the time, nobody knew who did it. Uh, Charles Manson was not a name that was known like nationwide. No one knew who that was, uh, and then it—it it was. I actually thought that was funny, how Divine has convinced David that he killed Sharon Tate, and that David's not really sure, and that's how she's blackmailing him. And the absurdity <laughs> of that, I actually thought was really funny. Um, yep. And then John Waters talks about later in the movie, because at a later point, if you remember, like he sees like a newspaper, and it says like Charles Manson. And he's like, oh my gosh, I didn't do it. Like, this proves I didn't do it. And he's like, now, you know, Divine doesn't have anything on me anymore. And John Waters says that that was an actual newspaper at the time with that headline. And then he said that literally happened while they were making that part of the movie. And that he had to rewrite his movie because now he had to reflect that really? there was this this Charles Manson character. So he said he literally really? wrote that part and used the actual <laughs> newspaper that was the actual newspaper of the day. So there you go. Well, you know what? It's all wrong because Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio killed them all. So oh, I love that. Don't spoil that movie. But I, I'll say, Eric, again, if had you had you just watched it just straight, I think you would have felt that that part came completely out of nowhere, which is how I felt. I was like, oh, this is... No, no, but see, when when I watch something like that without a commentary to hold my hand, I don't jump to conclusions like everything's out of left field, even if that's how it seems. I always, like, leave it open like I don't know yet. Like, like... But it turns out it was completely out of left field. He wrote it completely on the fly. I mean, it's, it's... I know, but there is, but there is a method to it, even if it was just happenstance. The method doesing change the result. It really was just a, a jumble. I mean, yeah. Your initial impression would have been the correct one that he just because that's that's how it comes off. It feels like he just threw this in because he had to change it on the fly. Can I can I write it now? Oh yeah, go yes. ahead. Sorry, I, okay. I forgot we're still. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's okay. That's all right. Uh, so uh, out of uh, five uh, vomit eaters or puke eaters, whatever. Oh, I'm gonna tell you guys a real puke story offline. But go on. I'm oh, writing God. it. Oh god. Okay. <laughs> Um, I'm going to give it three out of five. Um, it, not for the story, but for the acting. Um, I said earlier, they, these people can't fucking act to save their life, but they can overact, and they do that so well. 
um, our uh, Kyle, our mutual friend Kyle, used to do a podcast called "What the Fuck Are We Watching?" And at the end of that podcast, they they would say who was the best and who was the worst. Mm. And I think for me, the best is not divine. It's actually David Lockery. Agree. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just so just, I don't know, like not a person I would ever want to meet or know in real life, (laughs) but it's really enjoyable watching him on screen. And the worst, oh, it breaks my heart to say the worst is Mink Stoll. Oh, I love Mink Stoll and everything she does. No, but not um, this one. But not this one. And uh, you know, I completely agree with your best. Yeah, I, I didn't like Mince, and I think that's because I already have my preconception of what Mink Stoll is. Mm-hmm. But it's not this. Um, I want to watch this movie more on my own time in the future, just because I want to be able to mimic David's way of speaking. I want to talk like that. You know, this is the greatest show. You're gonna love it, but I, I can't do it now. But I'm gonna work on it. Yeah, I, and, and notice that he doesn't. Ha- he has a microphone, but there's no amplifier. It's just like <laughs> a Mister Microphone that they got, oh. and you know, there's no, you know. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, come up here right now. Um, but my worst, I, I love this best and worst. Uh, my worst, I'm not. It's it's between one of two people. Um, it's either Cookie, or it's oh, wow. the girl that David is is eating out. Oh, I oh yes, great. Both of them, they just have such a way of delivering John Waters' dialogue. It just it works perfectly for me. I, I mean, okay, maybe in the way Caleb says, but they, they were my. I'm not sure which, but one of them is my worst. Um, yeah. Oh, I. I didn't mean Cookie, I meant the other girl. I do like Cookie, too. She's bad in a, a funny way, but definitely bad. <laughs> yeah, the other girl, I can't remember her name. Bless her heart. Um, she's still with us. Um, I knew the name earlier when I wasn't drunk. Uh, it's uh, Mary Vivian Pierce. Oh. The If you look at the, the, the cover of the Criterion Collection, if you have the um, physical media, be a library... It says, uh, multiple maniacs, blah, blah, blah. It's got a picture of Divine. It says, starring Divine, David Lockery, Mary Vivian Pierce, Mink Stoll, Cookie Mueller, Edith Massey, and, in really small print, George Figgs as Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) They had to give Jesus Christ the credit. I don't know. There's stuff in this that I that I really like. Um, for instance, in the beginning of the movie, when they they steal all of the uh, the folks' stuff and they're out in the woods, not really out in the woods. They're like across John Waters' parents' house, exactly. And yeah. and, and they're looking through their stuff. And if you listen to what they say, like, oh, look at this costume jewelry. Oh, they have such ugly kids. Oh, look at them right here. You know, it's just the things that they say are so funny. And this movie does have its moments. However, it's it's very long on the tooth. It's long-winded. There, there are scenes that should be short. This this movie should be about an hour and fifteen minutes. Uh, but it's okay, uh, you know, because now looking back, it, it, if John Waters didn't make it big, no one would be watching this movie. This movie wouldn't be on the Criterion. And by the way, I, I I do have to mention, I'm really happy that the Criterion Collection has picked up movies like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just Ozu movies or Truffaut movies or that kind of shit. 
I mean, now they have uh, uh, Night of Living Dead on, on in their collection, which is great. Scanners. I mean, Jesus. And scanners, yeah. And um, fuck, I just found out they have Showa, the nine-hour Holocaust yeah. oh. documentary, which I hope I never have to see unless it comes up in the Thousand One Movies podcast. Uh. Um, but yeah, so thumbs up to the Criterion Collection. I, I like what they're doing. Um, I love that they continue to put out physical media, and that goes equally for, for uh, things like Arrow and Vinegar Syndrome and things like that. So. I was going to say, now they have competition with those kind of uh, super pristine, high-class releases. They yeah. branch out a little more. And and they're not going anywhere because there are people like me, uh, basically people who are middle-aged and older, who will continue to buy physical media and collect it. There you especially go. with all the, the stuff. So, yeah. So hooray, criterion for that, and that's all I have to say about this film. Yep, me too. Peace. He was in Platoon. Oh, yeah. Was he? Yeah. Wow, that's a movie I never go back to, ever. Why? What did it do to you? Uh, I just always thought it was a really lame kind of Hollywood take on a Vietnam movie. Oh, my God. That's so funny. <laughs> my uncle. Oh, my God. My uncle, who was, like, a veteran of the Korean War, told me that he felt like that was, like, I mean, he said this in the, in the mid-90s, and he said that was, like, the most realistic war movie he's ever seen. Oh, wow. Yeah, there was something about that movie that always just felt really artificial. I never got that vibe. I mean, it's definitely yeah. a Hollywood movie for sure, but no, I never got that vibe at all. If you'd like to hear what Eric and I think about Platoon, <laughs> you can listen to the first season of the Best Picture Podcast. Wow, I listened to that. I don't remember what you guys said. I was going to rewatch it too, but I was like, eh, re- rewatching Platoon? That's like getting my teeth pulled. No, it's not that bad. That's, it's in my top five, probably, of war movies of all time. Interesting, huh? I don't think, but I don't think that's, like, that's not a, that's not a, I mean, that's a very mainstream opinion, I think, I share with a lot of other people. Yeah, uh, but, but then again, Eric also really loves the thin red line, so. Okay, that's not mainstream, except for people who really love movies. Isn't that a Malick film? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I never seen that. Ter- Terrence Malick should just make a film three hours of him masturbating, watching, looking in a mirror. Wasn't that real life? I, <laughs> like, I grew in. I had to mature into appreciating Malick films because when I saw Thin Red Line when it first came out, uh, I completely didn't get it. And it's only with my age and maturity that, and me making myself 
like try to figure out that I have such a greater <laughs> appreciation for that movie. So, so I get it. There's there's a high bar of entry for that, but not Platoon. I mean, Badlands. You guys ever seen Badlands? No. Yes, a long time ago. I don't remember much about it. That's a wonderful film. Every, everything yeah. else I've seen by Terrence Malick, I'm kind of like, Ugh, I don't know what to think here. Tree, the Tree of Life, give me a fucking break. <laughs> and I love that Sean Penn has like second billing in that, but he's in the last two minutes. And the whole time I'm like, not that I love Sean Penn, but it's like, you know, if he's got second billing, I'm like, where the hell is Sean Penn? I'm waiting for, sh- there's dinosaurs. Okay, yeah, but that's not Sean Penn. And boom, he's, I should watch it again. Is there dinosaurs and, you know, in that? Yeah, there's a d- fucking scene where it goes back in time to the okay, dinosaurs. And- say no more. No, because all those movies are on my list. I really want to see all those movies. Well, we, we may do them someday, Eric. There's, I'm sure they were up for the Oscars at some point. Yeah, Tree of Life was up for Best Picture, which is why I own it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have owned it. Um, so, yeah. 